welcome to another episode of Stamper Cinema. As always, I'm your host. My name is Andrew. Thank you very much for downloading this latest episode. We are now at number 99, which is insane. We've been doing this podcast going on four years, and we're about to hit a big fat round number, which is, I don't know, it's exciting to me. So thank you to everybody who listens to the show. Without you, there is no show, so I'm extremely appreciative. Of course, if you are brand new, please, um, I don't know, uh, listen, obviously, like, uh, subscribe, tell your friends, leave a review. You can leave a review wherever you're listening to this. Apple Podcasts is huge. Or you can go to my website, stampercinema.com. I'm I'm really, really pumped to discuss the movie that we're going to be talking about. We're going to be covering The Fugitive from 1993. And I'm going to have writer Lana Makara to, to join me. I'm super excited to share this episode with you. Uh, Lana had reached out to me and she shares a, a love for for the, the story process. So kind of like that three-act structure you've heard me mention on here several times over. So within this conversation, we're going to kind of look at The Fugitive from that perspective. Um, what else do you need to know? Uh, you're going to hear us talk a little bit about, about story. Now, there are dozens, if not hundreds, shit, if not thousands of books on story or like the three-act structure. So some of the ones that... We, we're going to mention today, we're going to mention Story itself by Robert McKee. You'll hear me talk about the uh, the hero's journey, Joseph Campbell, or like the, the screenwriter's journey from by Christopher Vogler. Obviously, if you listen to the show, we've mentioned Save the Cat. Uh, Naomi Beatty, uh, who was on the show last year, we, we, we covered that pretty extensively. So there are tons of screenwriting books out there and books on Story. Take a look. Um, you can always also look at the show notes. I'll have some some information on on some of those out there. Um, what else do we need to cover? I mean, I, I know I'm kind of going on, but I like to provide a little bit, or rather, I want to provide a little context for this week. And speaking of context, now, if you've seen the movie The Fugitive, you very well may know that The Fugitive is based on a TV show from the 1960s of the same name. But what many of you may not know is that The Fugitive, both the film and the show, were based on real-life events. And while this episode isn't designed to be kind of like a true crime episode, I do want to share a little bit of history with The Fugitive. So if we were to like go back in the Wayback Machine to 1954, there was this American neurosurgeon. His name was Sam Shepard. And he was arrested for the suspected murder of his wife, Marilyn Shepard. Now, according to Wikipedia, and we all know Wikipedia is the, the basis for all uh, facts and uh, great uh, reporting out there, on the night of Saturday, July 3rd, 1954, Sam Shepard and Marilyn Shepard were entertaining neighbors at their lakefront home. While they were watching the movie Strange Holiday, Shepard fell asleep on the daybed in the living room. Marilyn walked the neighbors out. In the early morning hours of July 4th, 1954, Marilyn Shepard was bludgeoned to death in her bed with an unknown instrument. The bedroom was covered with blood, and drops of blood were found on the floors throughout the house. Some items from the house, including Sam Shepard's wristwatch, keychain, and key, and fraternity ring, appeared to have been stolen. They were later found in a canvas bag and shrubbery behind the house. According to Shepard, he was sleeping soundly on a daybed when he heard the cries from his wife. He ran upstairs where he saw a white 
a white form in the bedroom. Then he was knocked unconscious. When he awoke, he saw a person downstairs. He chased the intruder out of the house, down to the beach, where they tussled and Shepard was knocked unconscious again. At 5.40 a.m., a neighbor received an urgent call from Shepard, who pleaded for him to come to his home. When the neighbor and his wife arrived, Shepard was found shirtless, and his pants were wet with blood stain on the knee. Authorities arrived shortly thereafter. Shepard seemed disoriented and in shock. The family dog was not heard, barking to indicate an intruder. And their seven-year-old son, Sam Reese Shepard, was asleep in the adjacent bedroom throughout the incident. So... Basically, uh, you've got kind of like the intro to the the movie The Fugitive, right? A guy comes home. Well, in, in The Fugitive, a man comes home um, to see that his wife had been attacked. In this, a man wakes up from from you know sleeping to see that his wife had been attacked. Both of the film and the real life uh, story is that Shepard and our hero in the film, Doctor Richard Kimball, get in a fight with with the the said intruder. Now, the Sam Shepard uh, case, Sam uh, Sam Shepard says it was kind of like a like a like a dusty haired or like kind of like a shaggy haired intruder in the fugitive. It's a one armed man. Um, but that's just some of your fundamental facts. Now, what happens beyond about beyond those uh, what happens beyond those facts is only just the beginning. But essentially, Sam was sentenced to life in prison. He peeled for years, like years and years and years. He took the case all the way up to the, like the Supreme Court. There was a whole issue of like due process in the 14th Amendment. Essentially, he was or ultimately he was exonerated and released from prison in like 1966. He then died like in 1970. There you go. That is the basis beyond rather that is the basis for The Fugitive, the film that we're covering now. And if you've gotten this far after me talking for a good five minutes, thank you. Let's just get Lana on the show because she is far more interesting than anything I have to say. So Let's go. Lana, hello. Thank you very much for joining us on the show. How are you? Thank you so much, Andrew. I am delighted, excited. I've been waiting to talk to you. I know it's been it's been a minute since we first spoke. Uh, so uh, whereabouts in the country are you located? I'm in northern Florida. OK. OK. Whereabouts in northern Florida? Between Jacksonville and Tallahassee, right up at the border. OK. Yeah. Farm country. Yeah. Very farm country. I'm, I'm uh, yeah. A few hours north of you, I'm I'm in the Atlanta area myself. Oh, okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, what can you tell the listeners a little bit about yourself? Obviously, I introduced you in the the intro, but what do the listeners need to know about you? Well, I think for the basis of our discussion today, um, that I am a fiction writing teacher as well as a novelist, and I have been teaching three act structure, and I got uh, so much richness out of story by robert mckee and i incorporate that into my novel teaching and my novel writing so i'm excited about movies and in my course i have a course called how to write a novel that sells i always talk about movies not books because movies are simple they're easy to dissect and and to look at and also you can absorb them in a couple hours you don't need to read a book, you know, over a period of a week or something. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, this is right, right in my, uh, my sweet spot, I guess you'd say. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm excited because the, the, the film selection that you, uh, reached out to me I mean, and granted, you know, you, you threw a few wonderful titles at us, but I think the one we 
we went with, which is the, the, the fugitive that we're going to talk about. So I think from a, a story perspective, you know, speaking with like Robert McKee or screenwriting three act structure definitely can get into it. But other than just the beats, what is it about about the fugitive itself that that appeals to you? Well, there were a couple different points. One of them was that it was a true story based on a true story. It wasn't actually, you know, like a, a documentary. It was a fiction story based on truth was fascinating to me. And then uh, being an Earl Stanley Gardner fan, <laughs> Barry Mason days, um, I just was so interested to find out that Earl Stanley Gardner actually had helped him clear his name and get mm -hmm. out of prison. There was no escape involved. It was all legal. But it was uh, based on truth, I think, is always, you know, enticing. For, for the, the three or four people that are listening that haven't ever seen The Fugitive or know this story, uh, do you have a plot summary? Otherwise, I can just read the one that I've got like verbatim from like the Internet, which is pretty self-explanatory. But if you've got just a way to entice the listeners uh, or if anything comes to mind, how would you describe The Fugitive itself? Well, the fugitive is based on a situation where a, a doctor comes home and finds his wife almost dead. She's in the last throes of dying. Uh, when he comes in, a man attacks him. And the only thing he could really understand about the man is that he had a mechanical arm. And then the police come and he thinks they're going to, you know, help him find this man. And they actually arrest him and he's convicted and sent to, to death row uh, in the movie. So hope, hopeless. He, he not only lost the wife he loved, but now he's going to die as well. And he, had, he did nothing wrong. So that begins the chain of events where he, he escapes from prison and goes on the run and this wonderful character, this U.S. Marshals chasing him, and it's a cat and mouse game. And the 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 fact that he was a doctor helped him to maneuver some things that the average person wouldn't know how to do. And then he finds the he finds the one arm man, and finds out that there's more to it than just a random home invasion. So then he has to go after the real the real villain who's behind the whole thing. And at the same time, he's not really trying to clear his name as much as he is trying to get the guy who killed his wife. Right. But as this whole thing is unfolding, then you have the other side of the equation, which is the U.S. Marshal played by Tommy Lee Jones, one of my favorites, um, who is beginning to understand there's more to this than this guy just trying to get out of jail. So that uh, it ends up with a bittersweet ending where he does clear his name, but you realize so well at the ending that his wife is still dead. His life is shattered and he's going to have to figure out how to pick up the pieces and go on. Lana, you nailed that. That is uh, really, really very eloquent the way that you uh, that you put that together. So not much more to expand on. So I'll just do a little bit of like stats. So. The Fugitive is a film that came out in 1993, directed by Andrew Davis. For those that had ever seen Under Siege, he had directed that, and he did a uh, a Seagal movie a little bit before that, like what I think it was like Above the Law. 
Um, a couple different writers attached to this, but much of the film was kind of like written on the day, which is really kind of uh, interesting. I mean, the like Harrison Ford, Tommy Lee Jones, a couple of the other actors kind of rewrote scenes allegedly as as the story goes, based on what they were supposed to do. Just some of the some of the screenplay didn't quite work for how these characters would react. So I mean, a lot of the the beats were similar, but a lot of uh, a lot of freedom uh, given to uh, the writer, um, rather the the director and the the cast themselves. Speaking of the cast, Harrison Ford, Tommy Lee Jones, who won an Oscar uh, for this movie which is pretty wild for a Best Supporting Actor. Um, let's see, a couple other character actors that were in it, but uh, early, early appearance by Julianne Moore, uh, very early appearance by uh, Jane Lynch, uh, which is pretty wild to see her in this film as well. And I believe if you look really closely, you'll see uh, NBC anchorman Lester Holt uh, briefly in this movie as well, which is pretty wild. But... Uh, made on a pretty large budget. You're looking about like 45 million, uh, but gross definitely earned its money back and grossing well over $300 million at the box office worldwide. Critically loved. If you were to go on a Rotten Tomatoes, well over 96% crit uh, critical approval. And then the audience is not too much further behind. Uh, film mostly in Chicago, Tennessee and uh, North Carolina, where they actually did the that that big uh, incredible uh, train stunt, which is really amazing uh, for those that haven't ever seen behind the scenes. I'll definitely put that in the show notes. It took them about like ten weeks for like the preparation of that that infamous train scene, and this was done pre CG. Uh, but they really did crash a train and a bus uh, using realistic uh, effects. They did special effects to heighten the explosions, but. They really crashed a, a bus and really crashed a train, uh, which is which is really, really wild. And mm -hmm. any other stats I need to know of? Uh, oh, James Newton Howard did the uh, the score for the film, which is very, very um, uh, pretty strong. And as Lana mentioned, based on a true story, but specifically title wise, based on a uh, TV show from the 1960s of the same name. And yeah, I think. Uh, other than that, Lana just nailed that knot right out of the park. So thank you very much for uh, for getting into it. But why I really want to talk to you today is kind of what you spoke to in our introduction, which is that three act structure. And as a writer myself, I love I love these conversations even before. Maybe we'll get into that. But I also do love maybe it is kind of tied into it because there's some really interesting themes in this film as well. Right. It's not just a summer action film, which it is, but you know, there, there's a couple swipes at the, the pharmaceutical industry. There's a couple swipes at like our judicial system that we've got going on. Um, what else do we, um, uh, law enforcement, obviously like just kind of like the thrill of putting somebody away and not necessarily really caring whether or not, uh, some, you know, looking at, the fact, so kind of like a level of like apathy that kind of exists uh, within our country. So there, I mean, there, there's a lot that makes this work uh, movie work. Not just the the beautiful beat structure, but just even what is going on behind the scenes. Right? Would you agree? Absolutely, absolutely. It was to me incredible that the police, when he was arrested, didn't see that he was totally broken up and not at all guilty. He had no motive 
whatsoever. They manufactured a motive. Um, because I think it's just genius the way the viewer can see that Richard Kimball is innocent. They can see that so clearly. But the police, absolutely clueless. And it really heightens the suspense of the viewer seeing something the police don't see. And it's so obvious that an injustice has been done here. And that is really what pushes the narrative drive is the amount of injustice. And it's so blatant. Within the kind of like the first act, and maybe we, maybe we kind of like want to, for the listeners that haven't maybe uh, heard the show before, kind of discuss kind of like a three-act structure, just so as we're talking about your, your fundamental like act structure is kind of like a setup, a rising action, and the conclusion, right? Um, there are different terminologies. I mean, if you were to look at uh, Joseph Campbell, you know, he, he uses kind of like an 18-beat three-act structure and different different uh, different educators in the matter and different writers have kind of broken it down into different fundamentals, but three acts mainly. And within each act, you have different beats or things that drive the story forward. Like if you were to talk about kind of what gets this movie in like in motion, no pun intended, because it's literally like a locomotion uh, that's going on. But like what what's get what gets this movie really uh, moving? Well, I couldn't believe that he was actually convicted for one thing. That was like, what? Um, and I guess you can, you know, argue the point was the inciting incident when he's arrested. Was it when he was convicted? Somewhere in that part of the you know, narrative, that is where actually things get rolling. And then you get to the end of Act One, which to me is the train accident, because that launches him into the chase. Mm. The the actual shift in what's, you know, the the setting and the impetus of the story comes when he when the accident happens. I think it's interesting that at every juncture of the entire story, he's saving lives. He can't not save lives. He saves the life of the guard in the bus and pulls him out. And literally the man is a survivor because he did that. So, you know, time after time, you see him saving another person and another person. It was intrinsic in his character. He couldn't stop himself and save himself. He had to help somebody who was, you know, in trouble. So that that character, that showing or revealing of character in the bus where the train is barreling down, the man is hurt. Maybe fatally. He didn't really know, but he still risked his life to pull him out of the bus in time for the train before the train hit. And so that entire that entire ball of wax right there, the the bus accident, train crash and all of that was just rocket fuel for the the movie, because you're, you're seeing his character. And you're also seeing how desperate he is to get away and find out who killed his wife. Yeah. Yeah. Because you had mentioned like saving lives, obviously you mentioned that the prison guard, uh, but also the, the, the kid at the hospital a little bit later on in the movie as well, even in that third act, he's saving lives by blowing, you know, blowing that whistle on Provasic uh, by talking about, you know, the fact that it was um, potentially 
harmful to for those that were taking it as well. So that's a really good call out. He um, also uh, he saved the marshal's life at the end. Yes, yes, he did. Yes, and it's great because uh, their little like final lines in the movie is like the like I thought you don't care. He's like I don't, you know, don't tell anybody. But um, I don't know. Like Harrison Ford's been in some really, really well well-structured films. I know that Robert McKee spends a lot of time talking about Witness. I think one of the things that I'm drawn to in this movie is even within Tommy Lee Jones' like supporting role, he himself has a bit of a three-act structure, right? Because yes. we get that wonderful little monologue where he's like, search every in-house, out-house, out, you know, like, which is so beautiful. I think I'm probably just <laughs> even going to uh, uh, to insert that that line uh in this podcast because it's, it's such a great great moment all right ladies and gentlemen listen up we have a fugitive that's been on the run for 90 minutes average foot speed over uneven ground barring injury is four miles an hour that will give you a radius of six miles what i want out of each and every one of you is a hard target search of every gas station residence warehouse, farmhouse, hen house, outhouse, or dog house in this area. Checkpoints will go up at 15 miles. Your fugitive's name is Dr. Richard Kimball. Go get him. But we were introduced to him and and then so his change is when he does a you know the 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 little swan dive, but also why why did he go back to another hospital? Like the these questions that he's finding himself asking, uh, what is causing this? So still this idea of not really caring, just wanting to get the good guy, but learning along the way that there is there is more to it than meets the eye. And where he and Harrison Ford in the end, when Harrison Ford saves his life in the end, they share a laugh in like the final scene. So even even like the supporting character in the film does have a complete structure in itself. I think at the end, that's what makes this movie compelling is you're supporting your the, the cat and mouse the mouse is every or rather i guess the cat has its own um full arc that completes that completes the whole story i don't know just just kind of thought about that on the spot yeah um, tommy lee jones uh the parallel between the characters of tommy lee jones uh gerard the u.s marshal gerard and uh richard kimball is amazing i i noticed that there's no real villain. Well, the villain is the guy behind the murder, but the com- the competition between Tommy Lee Jones and and Richard Kimball is an antagonist rather than a villain. They just have mm. cross purposes. They're both actually good people. And the the parallels are amazing. They're both incredibly smart. They both make quick decisions, instant decisions. And they're both relentless, 100% relentless. And so because they're so so evenly matched going on this parallel track uh, with, with the chess game that's going on, it makes it, you can't look away. 
mm-hmm. because these these men are brilliant, hugely brilliant action takers. Yeah, yeah. Um, what also I think I love about this movie is in any film, there's always gonna be that like suspension of disbelief. You know, you just have to like go for the go for this journey. Like, how could this could never happen? Da 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 da. But what makes this and they're not like winking at the audience and they're not like having little sidebars with the audience. But this movie is set in 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 such a way that they also know a little bit about the implausibility of things that are happening around them and kind of call that out. But then the next thing happens and you move right on. Somebody jumping off off that dam probably doesn't survive. But in this case, he does. And that is kind of one of the driving points. All right. Well, then we need to set off an area around here. We're going to quarantine this. Well, not only does he survive, but he moves on and he's finding himself back to a hospital, which is now moving the plot forward, which is now unraveling these other layers to the film, which is really, really genius. And again, just something that that I think uh, excels as this movie's within its second act, which where he meets uh, people that helped him along the way and some of his friends, uh, again, Jane Lynch and um, uh, uh, Jerome uh, Krabby. I, I forget uh, the doctor's name, but who ends, up, who ends up being the real bad guy, but who helped him along the way as he's unraveling this giant mystery. All the while, uh, Gerard is trying to piece together this, this uh, crazy case of this doctor who obviously must have killed his wife but then he starts talking to the the inspectors uh like the the arresting officers and realizing they're they were just doing a job they 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 didn't do uh any of the deep work they just put him away for very very shoddy circumstantial evidence uh on things that didn't necessarily make sense which is again kind of like that meat and potatoes which opens up the movie that you see there's some deep themes that we're that we're talking about here Right, right. It's interesting that Gerard risked the life of one of his men. He shot the bad guy with his man right there. Uh, could have killed him easily and shook him up and didn't even just blew it off with the guy afterward. Where Richard Kimball is putting himself at risk in order to save a little boy he didn't even know, would never see again. And so there was a little bit of a, an exposure of the actual internal quality mm. of them, a difference in them, because his his um, team member that you know was there in danger could have lost his hearing permanently. Mm-hmm. He could have. Uh, it didn't tell you whether he actually had hearing loss. If, you know, after that, he just showed up later. But you know, there was permanent consequences to shooting that man with his his uh team member so close to him yeah that was such a great great scene and they had that little moment afterward and he's like you you think i should have i think what what does he say uh you think i should have compromised or or of that then he's he whispers like can you hear that like yeah he's like i don't compromise um but you see a little bit of the means that he's willing to go to fulfill what he thinks is his responsibility which is capturing a fugitive you know that's that's his his moral high ground at at what all at all costs what he's going to do including shooting a man you know maybe you know could have brought the man to justice could have you know arrested him but one of his guys was 
in peril. Uh, he could have also killed his own man. So probably not the the right call at the end of the day. I don't know. Uh, I mean, it's argumentative, but but you do learn a little bit about his character, like what he is capable of doing. And mm-hmm. and it is it, it's a very, very pivotal moment just when. But you're also placed in the real life scenario of, oh, snap, Richard, Richard Kimball could be in shit because this guy is not afraid to kill somebody because he literally killed the other guy mm-hmm. that survived that bus train uh train rack right i mean he's the other guy that survived that whole incident and so he he killed him stakes just keep getting higher and higher that's what yeah. it why it's such a great ride <laughs> yeah um when i was an undergrad i had a college professor that was like my writing teacher and one of the things that he always said is put your characters through hell like what's the worst possible thing that could happen to that character don't just think about it actually do that thing what is the worst thing that can happen we'll do that uh because mm-hmm. it all it does is escalate that that tension so uh when we finally do have our third act and we do have that that ultimate climax we are then uh rewarded at the end of the day and this movie does that beautifully but what i like about this movie is that it executes at least when i in my own internal uh, act structure of this is some people might think that the end of the second act might be when when he's found the one arm guy and he he calls Gerard and he puts hangs up the phone but he doesn't actually hang up the phone um and maybe there's a case for that for me I think more of that the end of the second act is after that when he realizes that. It's actually his buddy all along or his one of his his colleague that is responsible for that. And we get that kind of that end of moment. Oh, I got to go see a friend. And now he's on the subway and then he's attacked by that one. Our man, they get in the fight and then he's in the um, kind of like the conference thing and addresses. Uh, again, I keep saying his colleague. I forget his. I, I should have that pulled up in front of me. Nichols, but I do. Um... Pardon me? Dr. Nichols. Yeah. Dr. Nichols. Yes. Thank you. And they have their fight and what have you. But it's just such a like a strong um, I mean, just across the board, just the the breakdown of this movie. You've got great, great characters, great rising action. But you also have these great moments of pause in between to allow the audience kind of take in what's going on, calibrate what they've seen, where it might go. But it's not just one nonstop, nonstop, even though the the actual uh, the action is constant. You do get these wonderful reprieves that allow you to transition different moments in the film. One of my favorite lines is when in the third act, when they're fighting, they fall through the window and they go into the elevator and the elevator is going down. And Cosmo, who is Gerard's second in command, he looks over and he says, does he ever stop? <laughs> Which you could. Say about you know his boss right there beside him. Uh, both of those men would never stop. Yeah, I think Cosmo was that. I think that was like Joe Panigliano. I think was the the actor. Uh, again, mm-hmm. a lot of people, a lot of great lines in this movie. Uh, Tommy Lee Jones, I think, had like the best dialogue. A lot of like really great one two bits uh, in the movie. Uh, low key, one of my favorite lines in the movie was wasn't even said by like a major player, but it's like they can. They can they can dye the the river green one day out of the year. Why can't they dye it blue the other three hundred and sixty four, which I think is just like a little like nice touch on <laughs> just 
how dirty water can look. <laughs> I read a, a trivia piece on that scene at the parade, the the uh, St. Patrick's Day parade in Chicago. Uh, and they set the actors loose in the real St. Patrick's Day parade. And the cameraman could not find Harrison Ford. Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> he that's actually awesome. did lose himself in the crowd for a bit. <laughs> oh, I love that. I didn't I didn't I didn't see that. Um, you know, just unfortunately, we're we're kind of pressed for time. But I do want to say thank you so much for everything that you've done. Is there anything else that you want to kind of conclude with today? Again, like I, you're, everything you've done today, uh, I'm just so thankful to be chatting with you. This is one of my favorite films. So, <laughs> Well, thank you so much for the opportunity, Andrew. I've really enjoyed this conversation. Uh, the only thing, uh, my website is lanamacara.com. It's very simple. And, and uh, check in with me there. Thank you. Wonderful. Oh, uh, what, are you, what, are you, what are you doing right now? I have a book release coming in June, which is, I don't know if this will be out by then or not, but whether it is or not, uh, Reaping the Whirlwind by Rosie Dow. Rosie Dow is my pen name. Okay. And this, this book has won three awards. It's a historical novel about the Scopes Evolution Trial in 1925. Oh, and um, uh, it's coming out in June. Inherit the Wind, right? That they, Inherit they did... the Wind. It is, it is a, uh, an expose of the fallacy, the fact that Inherit the Wind is pure fiction. What I wrote is the truth. <laughs> oh, okay. Okay. Uh, well, I mean, that, that's, that's a good hook right there. Um, I, uh, admittedly, I, I, what, I, I guess I would have seen like Inherit the Wind, like in college, but, uh, so it's been, it's been, it's been a few years since, uh, the, what was it? The, how do they refer to it a lot? Just even like in like the Scopes Monkey Trial, I think is, mm -hmm. uh, one of the ways that they referred to it. Um, yes. but uh, I'm curious, yeah, take a look at what your, uh, what what the truth is and and how that works is is history something that you're that you're uh, attracted to in in your own writing or what was it about this that you wanted to to cover it? I in my first iteration of my career I was a historical novelist all my novels were historical now I'm going into co contemporary writing but um, I stumbled along the story of this court case that was misrepresented to the public. It was a media spin and they wrote a play about it, a movie about it with the historical spin, not the truth. And when I found out what the truth was, that it was totally a sham, then I had to write it. I couldn't not write it. It was too good to hold. What, 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 what's the title? Reaping the Whirlwind. Reaping the Whirlwind. Reaping okay. the Whirlwind by Rosie Dow. There are other books called Reaping the Whirlwind out there that are nonfiction, but Reaping the Whirlwind by Rosie, R-O-S-E-Y-D-O-W. There's a mystery. There is a mystery in it. I inserted a fiction mystery in the story as well. It's not just the trial. Okay. And you said that's coming out in June. In June. It's available for pre-order right now. Yeah. Well, shoot. Uh, I was going to, I was going to release this in July, but shoot, you know what? You just uh, got fast tracked. So I'm going to put this one out uh, immediately. So everybody can uh, uh, hear about that. No, that that's, that's one of the best things about this podcast is being able to meet people that um, that have a really good story and are doing incredible things. So, Lana, I can't stress enough how fun it was chatting with you. I apologize if I at any time took over. It's just you you selected one of my favorites and it was so fun revisiting this movie because I hadn't seen it. And shoot, I don't know, 10, 15 years, but I was watching it, you know, just a couple of weeks ago and. 
I was a kid all over again, just loving just everything they did with this movie. And um, I, I welcome you back. I know you also said you were, you liked a uh, little uh, Tom Hanks, Meg Ryan stuff. So uh, I think you got mail was what you had on there. Like my f- favorite is not one of the best Tom Hanks, Meg Ryan films. My favorite is Joe versus Volcano. But uh, if you ever want to come back, talk about you've got mail or anything else. I do welcome you. Absolutely. This has been fun. Thank you so much. All right. Again, thank you to Lana McCara for joining us on the show. And, you know, picking back on the whole screenwriting element that we discussed earlier, I do want to talk about those those three acts, um, right? Because you do have your, in the way that it's referred to, um, like Joseph Campbell or Christopher Vogler, who simplifies Joseph Campbell's like 18 steps down to 12. Your three acts essentially are your departure from the from the ordinary world. Then you have that second act, which is your initiation, and then your your third act or your return. Um, so that first act is we meet our hero in that ordinary world. He has that that call to adventure. He refuses the call, and then he ultimately crosses that threshold. So in the case of the fugitive, the way that I interpret the film to be is the ordinary world really for for our hero is he's he's kind of arrested at the beginning of the film right the movie's kind of told in flashback um the call to adventure or rather another tune that we often like to use is the inciting incident i think of as that bus and train that train collision right that's what that that's what upsets his status quo because he's already arrested he's going to be in jail for the rest of his life but what changes the film is he's now put in a position of freedom does he does he elect uh, to just hang about, or does he escape? And he escapes, right? So that's that that's that inciting incident. How uh, incident? How his life is now on a new path. But the the first act essentially ends in that scene at the dam, right, where he's got Gerard right in front of him. He can choose to be arrested again and remain a fugitive, or he can take that leap of faith off off the dam. And what does he do? He does take that leap of faith, right? And that's what's going to transition you from act one in the film to act two, right? Um, so act two is where, as as it's discussed, is that's where you have your tests, your allies, your enemies. Uh, you have your your ordeal. You you face death. You have those moments of rebirth, and then your your uh, closing moment in that second act is that that kind of that reward. And then your third act is what they call like the road back or the road back and resurrection and return with the elixir. Now, again, I'm throwing a bunch of these words out. These are all based from, uh, again, Joseph Campbell and uh, like I said, Christopher Vogler uh, simplifies it. But what you're getting is three acts in essence, right? You've got your, your setup, your rising action and your resolution. Just simply put, just your your setup who are characters that rising action which is essentially expanding that world and then conclusion or resolution how you're going to wrap it all up so again first act of the movie we meet our hero he's in jail his inciting incident is where there there's that epic crash the end of act one is he jumps off the dam act two is he meets uh dr nichols he meets a couple of other of his friends, he uncovers a little bit more of the mystery going on around him. He finds the, who the one-armed man is. 
all the while Gerard is pursuing him and Gerard is learning a little bit more about his case. And your second act essentially is when Dr. Richard Kimball learns, in fact, that it's Nichols who's the man behind all the, the drama that has, um, you know, befallen upon Dr. Richard Kimball. Third act essentially begins with the fight of Richard Kimball and the one-armed man, and then Richard Kimball having a little uh, showdown with Dr. Nichols, and then uh, Richard Kimball saving Gerard, and and then um, good prevails. And then the movie ends right then, right? The conclusion, and which is interesting because that climax of the movie usually isn't in kind of like the rising act. Often the the climax of the movie you often find in like the third act of the film and then a lot of movies the once you have that climax the movie's over because there's no reason to dwell on it unless you're lord of the rings return of the king and you have that climax and then you're going to get another 90 minutes of of them returning back to the shire but anyway all of that to say thank you listener for for enduring this episode um, or rather me speaking, I've kind of gone on and on and on. And I'm sure if you are a big writer junkie, you definitely have some thoughts on what I had to say. But what we can all agree on is that we're very appreciative of Lana joining the show. Definitely check out her book um, that's coming out in June. I'm going to have some links in these show notes, very, very detailed uh, show notes, obviously. So have a look at that. And what else can I say? Oh, next week. It's going to be episode 100. I'm super excited to share that episode. We're going to have one of our old, old friends on the show. In fact, so old. It was a, the person that got me into podcasting in the first place and the guest in my very, very first episode where we covered the cable guy. So my buddy Cooper will be joining us again. Cooper has been crushing it on his own podcast for, for years. And so it's a real honor that uh, that we'll have him. Not gonna, I'm not going to hint at what the title is. You'll just have to come back. But as always, dear listener, thank you for for checking out my podcast. Without you, there is no podcast. So keep on coming so I can keep making more of these. But until next time, this is Andrew signing off with another episode of Stanford Cinema. <laughs>